privilege to be with you, State College Alliance Church. This is my second time um, to be with you in your service, and uh, we are really grateful for your partnership. You are part of um, a group of 90 churches that are networked together for gospel expansion in Eastern PA, and we really do feel like you're big partners in that. A lot of stuff happens that you're unaware of, but a lot of it happens through your pastoral team. I feel so partnered with uh, your pastor, Aaron Henning. We do quite a bit of stuff together, and so just really, really grateful for State College Alliance Church. My last time here, not when I preached, but my last time here was in December. I think that was our last time in the State College area, and um, you have the uh, fame of being the place, not where we uh, contracted COVID, but where my wife had the first symptoms of COVID. So thank you very much that... um, we, uh, we will always think of uh, State College Alliance, I'm sorry, not State College Alliance, State College Community as a place where, wow, those first days were not so fun. Um, COVID wasn't like disastrous for us in some ways, but it would definitely fit in the category of annoying. Uh, the entire month of December, we were dealing with COVID symptoms and um, and then I, not my wife, um, though she was the one to bring COVID into our family, just want you to know that. She didn't suffer any long-term impact, but um, to this day, I'm still suffering some long COVID stuff. You ever heard of long COVID? It's like that syndrome that just never goes away. So the first of it was, um, yeah, the annoying month of December. Um, in the middle of that, probably the biggest difficulty apart from body aches was brain fog. Are you familiar with brain fog? Some of you, it's not at all like a diagnosis. You just live in that world all the time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like where you can't finish your sentences. And that started for me in December, just lack of clarity. I would be talking to somebody and just the words couldn't come out. It just was clearly unusual for me, but it it wouldn't go away. All the way into March, so, you know, months into this, it was still there. I remember I drove to the Scranton area to do an ordination service for someone and on the way back, there was a pastor friend. We were driving together, and I couldn't get rid of the guy, so we were still talking. And my problem was I couldn't carry on the conversation. I, I could not complete my sentences. I, there were words that wouldn't come to me. And it, by that time, it was just plain disturbing. And I remember uh, specifically I wrote in my journal the next day, God, I think I have to go on record here of saying I'm pretty sure I have dementia. I but I was, I was serious. I, I thought, I've got like some kind of like early Alzheimer's or something. I was scared. Soon after that, thank the Lord, it lifted. And I'll stutter a little bit today, but that's normal. Don't worry about me. It's not brain fog. I'm just like, that's the way I talk. But soon after that, this other thing kicked in for me. And it was, um, had to do with my taste and smell. And I didn't actually remember um, that my taste and smell were affected when I had COVID, but it picked up in, in March, and, um, and it's still to this day. And it's a bit dis- like disgusting. I'll explain it to you just a little bit but without going into details. It's not like I don't smell anything. It's that um, my categories are all messed up. Like I used to have a category for coffee. I'm a big coffee fan. Um, onions, which, you know, not like coffee, but I, I like onions and eggs, like a good fried egg or even a good hard-boiled egg. Um, And then I had these other categories that were not as enjoyable, like perspiration and some other body functions. 
What happened to me is all of that got absorbed into one category. They all smell the same. And like when it first happened, I was nauseous all the time because everything I smelled smelled like stuff I didn't want to be smelling or eating. And it would taste like stuff I've never really tasted, but I imagine it would taste like, and it was like, this is terrible. It's still continues, not as bad to this day. <clears throat> I say that to say that long COVID has been annoying, but the two stories that I told you are not the severity of it. The biggest long-term impact of COVID has been relational. I don't know what your relationships are like um, through COVID, but our family uh, would be one of those families that has taken a major hit. And I'm not talking about the death of anybody in my family. My, my dad lives with us. He's 92 years old, and he was spared, and he, he was fine through the whole thing. But I have three sons. Two of them live in Jersey. One lives in Arizona. I have seven grandkids. Five of them live in Jersey. Two live in Arizona. My sons that live in New Jersey live about four blocks apart, and they are one of those stereotypical, like, COVID relational disasters. They both love Jesus with all their heart. Um, leaders in their churches. But they just disagreed. The one is pretty super strict, firstborn, rule keeper, like, hey, if this is the rule, we got to keep it. Secondborn, a little bit more free-flowing, and like, no. And it triggered around a family vacation, like, how can we be together? And from that point on, the, 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 the conversations just completely stopped in any healthy way to the point that they're not talking at all. It's disrupted two vacations. We can't go to Jersey and be with our five grandchildren together. And since June of this year, when we attempt to try to have a family vacation this year, and I stepped in a little bit, <laughs> just, just, a, just a little bit, okay. I stepped in just a little bit to see like how we could resolve this. Now my second son has cut off his mom and I, and he won't talk to us. And actually, I didn't do anything bad. I, I, I didn't yell at him or anything. I, I didn't, like, order him or tell him what to do. But it, just the, the strain of it just went. And eventually he said, yeah, until September, we can't be in contact. Again, I, I, don't, I didn't tell that story because it's just therapeutic for me to tell it. Besides, the first service is the only time I told the story publicly but I tend to think that there's a lot of relational strain going on in families. I supervise um, 90 churches. Man, do I got stories to tell you about what churches have gone through um, through this time. I have pastors who's, who've quit, and I just, they're burned out from COVID. They just can't take the relational strain. So you've got family level, you've got church level. But, I mean, it gets much bigger, right? Like a political level. Like, it's difficult to have conversations. So when Pastor Aaron reached out to me and he said, would you like to preach into our series? I said, sure, I'd be glad to. What would you like me to preach into? And he said, rebuilding relationships. I was just like, oh. This has been by far the hardest time and we've had some hard times. This is, this is really up there. And for my wife, like super, super 
hard time. So I said yes, I would preach into this series uh, around the idea of relationships, not because I'm an expert on it, but because I'm in it. And I love God's word. And I love to see how God's word speaks to us. And immediately I was drawn to Romans chapter 12, um, particularly verse 12, but verse 9 is where it all starts. So I, I, want, I want you to start there. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it gives kind of like context for the whole thing. Look what it says. It says, um, love... I'm getting there. 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Now, to rebuild relationships through, through the, all that has gone on, this is probably the text we better understand, right? Like, keep love alive. And, and the love that is to be kept alive, it, it can't be hypocritical love. There's an old translation that says, let love be unfeigned. And the idea is not pretended, not fake. There, there needs to be a vibrancy to love. And wow, do we need that. And if there's grace from God for us to have genuine love, if the, if the world around us, unchurched people, ever were looking to see something unique, something distinct in God's people that would be unique, not in a weird way, unique in a beautiful way, wouldn't it be that it's the way we love so you can imagine my brokenness as I walk down the street crying for our churches and I say, but God, I can't judge anybody because this is in my family. But if ever we needed a word about genuine love to be restored, wouldn't you agree now is one of those times? So the rest of the text, uh, the, the whole chapter from 9 down to 14 or so is... Uh, is kind of unpacking how genuine love can happen. Let's, let's go throw that on the screen. I want you to see this and look at it in your Bible, but I want you to see it here. The yellow is a little bit hard to come through, but I hope you can pick it up. This is a technique in writing in general, and you find it a lot in the New Testament where participles are used. So you see I changed it to use participles. So like abhorring, a participle typically is recognized by that ing. And it answers the word like, hey, if I want genuine in my love in my life, where's going to be the battle lines for that? What do I have to be on, you know, looking out for? And what do I have to be good at? So Paul gives this long list. So if you want to have genuine love, it's going to be, the, the process is going to include these kind of things, abhorring evil, holding fast to what's good. Again, a repetition, love one another with brotherly love, outdoing. You're going to have to outdo one another in showing honor. You're, you're going to have to not be slothful in zeal. You're going to have to be fervent in spirit. You're going to have to do it as a way to serve the Lord. This is how genuine love is going to be kept alive. And then verse 12, you're going to have to be rejoicing in evil. I'm sorry. <laughs> rejoicing in hope. <laughs> Whoops. I told you the yellow's hard to read. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer. And then it goes on contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. All that long list of how to keep love alive, how to have genuine love. I can't preach all of that. I just want to focus on verse 12. If you're struggling with genuine love, if you need relational rebuilding in your life, it's going to focus on three things. One has to do with 
hope. One has to do with affliction. And one has to do with prayer. I think you could say it this way, that what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to base your joy in hope. You're going to have to be patient in affliction. And you're going to have to be constant in prayer. I want to unpack especially two of those real quick, and then I want us to pray together. So the first is to base joy and hope. Now, pause and think about that. That's a little bit strange. Typically, we don't have our joy based on something that is our hope. Typically, we have our joy based on something that we have. And hope and possession are two different things. You don't hope for what you currently possess. The nature of hope is something that you desire, want, long for, would be good in your life, but you don't have it yet. The text is saying if you want to have genuine love, if you want love to be kept alive, you're going to have to be good at rejoicing in something that you do not currently experience. You're going to have to rejoice in something that you hope for. Now, the experience of rejoicing in hope isn't absolutely foreign to us. We do it, we do rejoice in hope of something. So, for example, food, right? Like the anticipation of some really good food can make you pretty happy, right? I mean, you maybe, I might have just triggered you right there, and you thought milkshake, milkshake, and you're like, I'm kind of happy about the, the concept of a milkshake in my future. That's rejoicing in hope. Or like a date, right? Like some, something's in your schedule, a, a meeting you're going to have with somebody, and you're not currently possessing that. It is a future hope. And yet you're experiencing joy now over something you don't have. You're simply hoping for it. You, you get the idea? For you to have genuine love in the middle of relational difficulties, you can't base your joy on what you're currently experiencing. You're going to have to learn and be practiced and skilled in, in setting your hope on something that isn't yet, but is, but is to come. Typically, here's where our joy level co comes when it's stuff for the future. We set our mind on what we think should happen. We have an agenda. We have like a, an outcome, something that we, we anchor our soul to what we want to have happen. And then we say, I am delaying my joy until that happens. You know, like if you're in a relational difficulty and, and in your mind you play these like um, games in your head where you're going, oh, I can't wait till that person comes back and they grovel to me and they say, I was so wrong, you are so right. And you, you fixate on what will be and then you say to yourself, and I'm not going to be happy until it happens. That kind of living, friends, when our okayness, our, our, our well-being is centered on something, an outcome that we have as an agenda in our mind of what must happen, that's no way to have genuine love. I can guarantee you, if that's your pattern, you're not going to experience genuine love. Because the first indication that that thing is not going to happen, you will watch your heart sink. You'll have no joy at all because you're fixated on an outcome that you can't control. Can I give you a better thing to fixate on? A better thing to hook your hope to that if you do, you will experience joy. 
guaranteed. Do you know what it is? Put your hope in the gospel. Put your hope in the gospel. Now, I I could unpack this for a while, but I'm just going to give you three things about the gospel that if you put your hope in the gospel, you will have hope. Here's the first. It's the gospel of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. It's the gospel of reconciliation. In other words, Jesus is an expert at reconciling things. To reconcile means to bring back together that which was broken or divided. To reconcile means to restore what had been torn. Jesus died and was raised to life for reconciliation. If you bank on the gospel of reconciliation, you'll start to say, wow, like, that's what Jesus died for. Probably he's going to work towards that. I can get pretty at least content with that. I might even get a bit hopeful. I might actually start to rejoice in it. The idea of reconciliation that hasn't happened yet, but it will because Jesus is vested in it. The second is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love that title. Jesus is Messiah. He's king overall. He's the Lord. He reigns in everything. When you pause and stop and say, this relationship seems completely severed and broken, but Jesus is here and Jesus is Lord, it will start to stir your heart with a bit of rejoicing. Jesus is here. Jesus is Lord. And the third is the gospel of redemption. To redeem, similar to reconciliation, redeem means to take something that is sold off as a slave and to buy it back for its original purposes. To redeem means to take something that's dirty, defiled, stained, trashed, and to restore it to its original purpose. That's to redeem. It's the gospel of redemption. And I tell you, my friends, I think that there are purposes for my family I have prayed over my sons for a long time and I have seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in their life and I believe God has purposes for them and my biggest battle that fights in me against genuine love is when I give up hope of redemption. I have to be a person who holds on to hope that my Savior is a Redeemer and the relationships that seem severed, broken, like there's no hope for it, Jesus says, not yet. Not yet is a powerful, hopeful word that's rooted in the gospel because he's here and he's Lord because he's reconciling things and because he's redeeming things. It gives me a sense of hope that I can rejoice in. You know, there's a big difference between hope in a relationship and hope that's lost in a relationship. Can anybody say out loud, what's the line that comes out of our mouth when we've lost hope in a relationship? What do we say? What's the use. Should I call my son? What's the use? Should I reach out again? What's the use? Should I engage in that conversation one more time? What's the use? Should I try to work through our disagreements so that we can see maybe if something good could be? What's the use? You see, hopelessness destroys hope. But as the gospel renews our hope, 
we, we might actually come to the place of saying, you know what? It might not be time yet to cut off that relationship. It, it might be worth giving it another chance. I'll say this out loud, but I'm sure all of you in the room can identify with this, but we'll just assume that some people online might. Maybe I shouldn't leave my church yet. Maybe I should give that person another try. It, it doesn't mean that the issues that we're battling over are not important. Our perspective on things might be really, really important, but often in the kingdom, you find tension between two things that are both righteous values, but they're in tension, and maybe we're in tension over a kingdom purpose that we haven't resolved yet. Maybe I need to give it another try. You see, that's what hope does. It keeps us in the game a little bit longer. And for genuine love to happen, we've got to get skilled at rejoicing in hope. There's a second part of the verse. Being patient in affliction. In the same way that it's a bit difficult to rejoice in hope, not in possession, in a similar way, it's difficult in affliction to stay patient. In fact, Paul uses a word here for affliction, which is an intense word. The idea is to take like a rock and another rock and you're in the middle and you're pressed in from both sides, feeling like you're going to be crushed. That's the feeling of affliction. I'm pressed in on both sides. I am being pressured. Like I am squeezed. That's the feeling of of affliction, and everything in us in the middle of that pressure is, I got to get out of here. I got I to get out of this. This is going to crush me. This is, going to, this is going to overstrain me. Yet Paul's call in the middle of affliction is what? Be patient. Stay right there. Have you ever gone to a doctor's office and you lose patience? What do you want to do? I'm out of here. That's not being patient. In affliction, it's understandable that we would want to say, I'm out of here. But for genuine love to be alive and not pretended, for it to be the real deal, not only do we have to learn to rejoice in hope, we need to learn to be patient, staying power, in the middle of affliction. My wife and I, I've already been kind of personal. I'll be a little bit more personal. My wife and I are polar opposites. I mean, not only is she a woman and I'm a man. I mean, that's kind of polar opposite. Personality-wise, we're just like... <laughs> Whenever there's any kind of relational conflict, my wife is, I want to get close. I want to get close. Let's talk this out. Like, can we maybe touch at the same time? Like... Good. Hug will help a lot. That's my wife. I am like, if there's conflict, like, I don't want to talk to you. So she's like, come here, come here, come here. And I'm like, get away, get away, get away. <laughs> it's hard in a relationship. So guess what's happening in our family as there's relational conflict in my family? My wife is everything about, we got to get together. And I was like, I'm done with these people. 
Can a dad say that about his family? Tough. Do you only as a dad entertain that line when it hurts that much? And that's affliction. Call is to be patient. One of the reasons I think it's really difficult for us as Christians, particularly our tribe of Christianity, which some would call the evangelical tribe, is as evangelicals in general, we're not really good at understanding pain. We're just, if, if I could be honest with you, we don't know how to grieve well. We don't know how to get angry well. <laughs> Case in point, last year and a half. Right? right? We, we, we don't have a good theology of suffering. We think, as Christians, that if, if pain is introduced in our life, we can somehow make it go away. If we pray enough, if we're spiritual enough, if we volunteer enough, if we whatever, we have the, the, the way to make pain go away so that we don't have to be patient in affliction because we're just patient because affliction's gone. That's how we tend to think, but it's wrong and it's not biblical. We need to learn some more Old Testament view of pain and introduce into our vocabulary biblical words for pain like lament. It's not even a common word for us. How many times did, how many times recently has someone said, hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm lamenting. I mean, we, we don't even say that. But Jeremiah is like the prophet of lament. Like the book of Jeremiah is almost full of lament. Lamentations, it is a lament. The book of Psalms has five categories of Psalms. One of the five is lament. The idea of the Psalms is we're to learn through the Psalms language for every area of our life, perhaps as if there are five areas of life, and one of them is lament. But listen to this. Do you know what is the percentage of lament in the Psalms? 50%. Does that mean in the Holy Spirit's mind that if the Psalms give us language for our life and half of the Psalms are lament, could it be That in God's eyes, perhaps half of your life is going to be hard. That's not going to win a lot of people to Jesus. But could it be reality? It's been said, it's been said that it's hard to find a wholehearted follower of Jesus who's older than 40 years of age. I'm a lot older than that. I'm not saying it's impossible to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus after 40 years of age where the God's word comes into your life and, he, and he's, you're a Jesus follower like we saw in baptism and you're like, yeah, I'm a Jesus. So God's word says this and a wholehearted follower of Jesus would say, yes, sir, I'm in. I'm all in with enthusiasm to follow you with all my heart. That's a wholehearted follower of Jesus. It's hard to find one like that who's over 40. Do you know why? 
because the pain of our life comes to a place where we start to set boundary lines and we say, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. I'll never. And our hearts gradually get very, very hard where we reduce our Christian experience down to the comfortable, down to the doable, down to where we will never experience pain again. We're just not good at it. But lament has three categories that I think I could teach you all day about lament. I won't. I'll give you three quick things real quick. Lament means you vent to God. Lament means you vent to God. All of us vent in our pain. We have someone that we talk to, we text to, we write to, we, what, we scream to. Lament means, God, you get my cry. Number two, in lament, we name our pain. We name our loss. We don't run from it, we don't suppress it, we don't ignore it, we press into it and we say, you know why I'm hurting? And I could go on and on. I don't have influence in my son's life right now. This thing is destroying my family and I've always been a very engaged dad and I've always been there for my sons and I've always tried to like get into their heart and I've tried, but, but I can't. That's been taken from me. It's a loss and it hurts. That's lament. Or I can't be with my grandkids. I mean, for crying out loud, for a year and a half, I can't have my five grandkids together who live four blocks apart. I can't show up for their birthday parties on the same week. I can't do that. No, that's a lot. You name it. You vent to God. You name your pain. And then the third one is this. When you name your pain, what you'll experience is that you're carving out something deep in your soul. It's down there, but you haven't named it. But when you do, you, you are like literally picture your soul and you're carving out a deep space in your soul. Listen, lament is carving out the deep space of your soul only to find. Jesus is willing to meet you there. And could it be that the purpose of pain is to take you into depths of your soul that you never knew existed because Jesus so longs to meet you there. And you'll find out something about him that you could only know there. That's a picture of lament. Venting to God. Naming your pain. Carving out your soul and finding Jesus there. When we learn lament, we can actually in affliction, stay. Be patient. So I wrap it up with this. Did you notice that there's a third part to the, to the verse? Rejoicing in hope, patient in affliction, constant in prayer. Do you know why I think Paul put that triad together? as a, a means towards genuine love? I think it's because the only way you'll ever be able to learn to rejoice in hope and the only way you'll ever be able to be patient in affliction is if you know something about prayer. So we're actually going to turn this room into a prayer meeting for a while because I want to lead you into a time of prayer. I'm not assuming that everybody in the room is on like in the same place that I'm at in terms of relational pain and the need for relationships to be rebuilt in your life. I'm not assuming that everybody is in that, 
but my assumption is probably a good percentage of you can name some relationships that have been cut off over this last year. Some people that you've said, I'll never talk to you again. Or some people that you've said, I'll never have that conversation with you again. Even if Jesus himself would tell you to go there, you've experienced it in the closeness of heart. You say, no, Jesus, not again. I'm imagining that there's probably a good percentage of you that know something about relational strain, either at a friend level, family level, workplace level, church level, definitely at a political level. And all of that is the place where Jesus is calling for genuine love. Prayer is going to be the way for that to happen. So, let me just define what I'm talking about. When I talk about prayer, I'm not talking about the lament part of prayer, which is just venting to God. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, okay, the worship team come, and Dan, maybe you could just start playing a little bit. I'm not talking about the lament part of prayer, which is very genuine, where it's just venting to God. I'm not just saying, God, I'm mad, I'm mad, I'm mad. That's beautiful, um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the, the kind of prayer which is bringing your lists to God of what the outcomes are that you've determined must happen. Oh, God, make that person come back to me and grovel to me and tell me that they were so sorry that, for what they've done. It's not prayer of lists. That's not what I'm talking about. The kind of faith-building prayer that gives strength to rejoice in hope and be patient in affliction is the kind of prayer, listen, where you hear Jesus call your name. That's the kind of prayer I'm talking about. Some of you go, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is what I mean. Have you ever been in God's Word, in a church service, singing a worship song, and there's a phrase, it just jumps out to you. It's clearly rooted in God's Word. It's, you, you're reading it in Scripture. It just jumps off the page to you, and you feel as if someone inside you is saying, this is for you. That's him calling your name. He's saying, my, my daughter, my son, this is what I have for you. The place for faith to be built is when you're in the place, it's called intimacy before Jesus, and as you're before him, you hear him call your name, you're his son, you're his daughter, and this is what he has for you. In that place, you will find the strength to rejoice in hope, and to be patient in affliction. That's why we need to be constant in that kind of prayer. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn this into a prayer meeting. And um, often, there's an intentionality that's required in prayer. So there's going to be some things I'm asking you to do which are, they're clearly intentional, and I can guarantee you a lot of you will go, I don't want to do that. Okay, so just all agree that you're going to feel that, but you're not going to pay attention to it, okay? You're, you're not going to go, I don't want to do that, and I only do what I want to do, and, well, I'm not comfortable with that one. I only do what I'm comfortable with. We're going to just rule that out. We're going to say, no, there's an intentionality about prayer that sometimes stretches me beyond really what I would want to do in the moment or um, really what I feel like doing or what I'm comfortable doing. In fact, sometimes the first tw step towards prayer is the hardest step because we have to have an intentionality to it. And we do anything but pray. So 
intentional. Second, often in Scripture, there's this idea of going to a place of prayer. So Jesus would go to a solitary place to prayer, go to your closet and pray. So we're going to call this area up front the closet area of prayer, okay? So you can tell where this is going. I'm going to ask some of you to come to the front, and you can sit. We've got all these rows that are open. You can sit there. You could kneel here if you'd like. You could kneel at a chair. You could just stand. But the idea is you're going to come intentionally to be before Jesus, seeking to hear his voice in prayer. And you do that because you know some relationships need to be rebuilt. Okay? So let's just be still for a moment. Okay? Would you please bow your eyes? We're going to invite the Lord to come and and manifest himself in ways that we would recognize his leadership. If it's going to be him calling our name through his word, then, then we want to hear that. So, here as we wrap up the service, Lord, we just want to take a few minutes. The talking's done. We want to listen at another level. And we pray that you would, as we hear your name, as we hear you speak our name, that, that faith would be created in this room. Faith would rise up. Faith that would be sufficient for us to rejoice in hope and to be patient in affliction as we pursue genuine love.